When, uh, when people say that they want the church to be a, a biblical church, they often mean that they want us to pick and choose those verses from the Bible that make us feel really good about ourselves. Um, but as you can see from this morning's liturgy, there's quite a bit of the scripture that is a little bit like watching a, an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It's, uh, it's some scary stuff. And so we need to hold on to our faith and hold on to each other as we plow into this next part of the... Uh, series that we are calling Anointed. Um, I want to thank uh, all of you as a personal note for giving my wife Judy and I a few days to get away. We spent some wonderful time with our family on the central coast of California. It was, it was quite uh, beautiful there and cool. Um, and uh, uh, we saw all kinds of marine and other wildlife, including grandchildren. So that was um, just wonderful. Uh, I'm back today, and then, as you know, we're um, going to be heading up the coast uh, so that we can ride back down. And so um, would have you pray with me right now. Gracious God, as we open your word, we pray that it will be an effective and clear mirror for us to gaze into, to see not only those who have come before us, but to see ourselves in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Jerry did a wonderful job last week of showing where the anointing uh, of God had brought David. David the boy wonder, David the decisive, David the, some would have said impetuous, certainly David the one who was passionate as a shepherd of the sheep and as a shepherd of God's people. When Saul was anointed by Samuel, God's own self was kind of taking it as a trial run. If this works out, then I'll keep you as king. But if, it, if you mess up, then you can't be king anymore. And that conditional clause, if, had been something that the Israelites had lived with for years. When Moses led them through the wilderness and Joshua led them into the promised land, it was with the notion that if you do well in the land, God will preserve you in the land, and if you mess up, God will expel you out of the land. There's always that condition in there, if, if, if. And as Pastor Jerry was sharing last week, something changed with David. God saw the possibility of a whole new relationship with his people as David came along. And he made a covenant with David that David and his descendants would sit upon the throne as a royal lineage in God's line forever, forever. The if was changed to a nonetheless. You might mess up. Nonetheless, I will be with you and you will be mine. Now this all started because David had been campaigning, and one by one, he had been doing as the people had asked when they first asked for Saul. He had been leading out the armies of Israel against the enemies of Israel, and he had been forging in the middle of a place where there was no place for the Israelites. He was forging, with God's help, a place for the Israelites. We still see the same argument taking place today in that region. 
What are these people doing here? God put them there. Uh-huh. Well, let's see about that. But David had settled the Moabite question, and David had settled the Philistine question, and David had settled the Syrian question. The Ammonites were the only ones left. There were skirmishing, and there were some pitched battles, but it was almost set and secure. And David said to himself one night, I'm sitting here in a palace fit for a king, and the Ark of the Covenant has no home. The ark had come to be identified as the place where God's grace was touching the earth, and they carried it with them as they went into battle and did various things. And David said, I am a king, and I'm living in a home, but God has no home. How is this right? I know what I will do. I will build God a house. David, in his advancing years, has one big project in mind. He's going to spend the back half of his life building a temple to glorify the living God, a place for God to dwell and he told his friend Nathan, who was a prophet, he told Nathan about it, and Nathan said, sounds good to me, do as, as you feel led. That night, Nathan had a dream. And, and in that dream, God said to Nathan, I want you go, to go back and speak to David about this. And I want you to tell him, I never asked you to build me a house. And instead, I'm going to build you a house. Now, the word house has two meanings here. In the case of David, we're talking about bricks, mortar, cedar, all kinds of beautiful furnishings. That's what David had in mind. What God has in mind is a house, as in a lineage, as in a genealogy. So you see what's going on. David had presumed that in his power as the king, he could do something wonderful for God. And God has Nathan go back to David and say, here are all the wonderful things I've done for you so far, David. And by the way, I am going to be the one to build you a house. You will be a king, and your descendants shall sit on the throne forever. You cannot have a commander in the army stepping in and serving the church in worship on Sunday morning. His hands have been sullied in battle, bloodied in war. There are priests who will come to serve. There are people who are descendants of the tribe of Levi who will come to serve. Someone else will build the temple. David's descendants will build the temple. This is not for David to do. Well, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but if you've had a big dream in your life and you said, here we go, I'm going to do it, and then God says, no, you're not going to do that. I don't need you to do that anymore. Then you're stuck on a lazy summer afternoon with your kid brother's head sticking up right above the edge of the couch. What do I do? And so... It was springtime, the time when kings in all these other city-states go to war. It's time for the kings to go to war. David summoned Joab, as he had done many times, said, here's where I want the battle to go. You go and take to it. And he summoned all the Israelites, and they all went out to war. But the scriptures tell us David stayed behind. I used to be enthralled with all the stories of Arthur and uh, the Knights of the Round Table when I was younger. 
I've studied them and studied them, and I began to learn that there's a rhythm to palace life. There's a rhythm to living in a castle. There's a rhythm to being a knight of the realm. And in the fall, you cease the battles, and you come home, and you help the peasants get that wheat harvest in because that's going to be your food. And you bring in the livestock, and you secure it for the winter. And you put up the storm doors, and you, you make sure the castle is ready. And then you head down toward the blacksmith and say, the armor is dented here, and the sword needs to be rehoned here. And you do all the things in the wintertime that prepare you for what is to come in the spring. You look and see which of the mares have conceived and are going to bear colts to be raised up to be part of the king's horses. You do all of the, the stuff that the wintry time brings so that in the spring you can be ready. The, the castle never really sleeps, but there's a rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. And now it was spring and the, the preparations for the new campaign had been finished and the armies had been summoned and they'd been sent and David stayed behind. And it was a fresh spring day and the storm windows had been removed and the doors of the castle had been opened and the wind was sweeping through, bringing the fragrance of all the flowers of spring. And it's amazing how quiet a castle can get when no one is in it. David is walking along because he stayed behind. And there on the roof, he sees a woman who is bathing in the warmth of a, of a beautiful spring day. She has finished her monthly, and according to the prescription of the Word of God, the law of God, she is purifying herself so she can rejoin her family and the others. It was not unusual in that time for a woman or anyone to take refuge on the roof of a house. The roofs were not like ours, all pitched. They were flat. It was a living space, and it was private. It was away from all the things that were going on in the house. And if it was warm, then it would be a beautiful place to bathe. And besides that, no one can see you except maybe somebody who's living in a palace and can look over the parapets and look down. David summoned a servant. Who is that? They went and checked and came back. Said she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bring her here. In that moment, David had actually picked off two of the commandments of Moses. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, his wife, his oxen, anything else. Bathsheba is introduced to us as a woman who is the daughter of a man and the husband of a man. Her whole life is defined by the relationship that she has to the men who are around her. This is the Bible's way of telling us that there's a very powerless situation here. Now the king has asked for her. And in a very abrupt sentence, we find that he sent, and he took, and he lay with her, and sent her back home. Four simple verbs for a king. But four powerful moments for David. Because they bring us to the place 
where sin has begun to bloom in a person's life. Please don't get bogged down in the sex because this is a story about power. Please don't get bogged down in the power because it's a story about something that's going on in every one of us. There's a war going on in us for our soul between sin and the Holy Spirit. We are children of anointing. Where David was anointed as the king of Israel, we have been anointed as God's children, every one of us. The Holy Spirit has made itself manifest. Where there was, before we knew Christ, a dried and shriveled up soul that had atrophied unto death, the Holy Spirit has brought forth a branch upon which the dove of God's peace may alight within us. But that doesn't mean that the after effects of sin are not still there. Sin is after us every day. And over the next few weeks, if you get nothing else from this anointed series, please take this home with you today. Write it down on your bulletin, put it there. I need to be in church. I need to be in community. When the others of God's faithful are going in this direction, the worst thing that I can do is stay behind and do my own thing. We don't want to talk about sin, even though it afflicts everyone in this room, because sin is a separateness, a separateness from God and a separateness from God's faith community. We want the anointed part. We want the part where we're empowered to face giants and send our sling and our rock to kill the giants. We want all the good and happy stories. We want to feel that we're anointed, but let me turn with you to the pages of the New Testament where Paul quotes a hymn to the Philippian church that he must have sung a million times in his life. Have this mind amongst yourselves which we find in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something that he should exploit to his own advantage. Nor should anyone within the sound of my voice count the anointing of God's Spirit as something to be exploited to our advantage and to our desire and to our urges. Oh, I see the church sometimes say, well, it doesn't matter what I do because I just lay it at the foot of the cross. I just lay it at the foot of the cross. I just buried it all at the cross, at the cross, at the cross. We're all sinners, so just leave it at the cross. This is not life. It is salvation in one sense, but the life that we speak of in Christ is a living life, a living relationship, a powerful relationship with God. And when we, when we find that the residual effects of sin have caused us to go in a, in a direction that is unhealthy for us, there is nothing but the faith community that can restore us to where we need to be. And David is out there alone this week. He's on his own. And he probably thought this is a nice private affair. You've had that thought before. It's just between me and God, no one else is hurt. Who's gonna find out? And by the way, Bathsheba didn't really seem like it was all that bad for her either. And then she sends back and says, now I'm pregnant. 
and Uriah is out with the armies. And there's a good chance that Uriah can do math. And six or seven months from now, Bathsheba's gonna have some explaining to do. And there's an equally good chance that she's not gonna be able to say, well, it wasn't the king. <laughs> and so David calls Uriah home, home from the battle. So Uriah, let's sit down, let's talk. David leans across the table, so tell me how the battle's going, is everything going all right? Everything's fine, your highness. So why, you've had a hard day and a long time. Why don't you go, why don't you go on home and <laughs> the scriptures say, wash your feet. <laughs> have supper, have a shower, you do the rest from there. You know what he was asking him to do. Go home and cheer up your wife. Uriah says something to David that must have gouged to the core of David's heart. Your Highness, the Ark of the Covenant is out in the field, living in a tent. Remember what David's issue was? God needs a home. I want to build a home. Well, Your Highness, there is no home for the Ark. It's out living in the tent with the rest of my comrades, my brothers in arms. I cannot go home and sleep with my wife while the Ark is out there. Thank you very much. So he went to the door of the palace and he slept there on the steps. Now, here's a litmus test. Here's a little bit of mercury for your thermometer. When you find somebody who in the innocence of their own purity is describing the way that things are with God and how it should be, and they're speaking from a place of deep moral certainty and purity, and you find it's making you angry to hear it, that's a good time for a gut check in your life. I imagine David was doing a slow boil. Who is this soldier to tell me about what's right for the Ark of the Covenant? I'm the king. I'm the anointed one. What David has yet to learn is that Uriah is also anointed for the work that God has given him to do. And each one of us is also anointed for the work that God has given us to do. Pastor Jerry and I have struggled from time to time. I won't speak for him, but I can speak for myself, that as pastors we think, well, God has called us, God has anointed us, the bishop laid his hands on us, this makes us pretty special around churches. And then I have to be reminded by the Holy Spirit of where I was sitting when God called me, and it's right where all of you are. And God hasn't stopped calling people. It's not like the Lord said, well, Pastor Bill has made it into ordination. Now I can stop calling people into ministry. There's ministry to be done all over the place. And each one of us is anointed for that ministry in a powerful, visceral way. Are you with me on this? And so, David is at his wit's end. There's a big, fat question to be resolved, something of his own doing, but he hasn't yet peered into the depths of it. Uriah comes back a second day, Uriah, I told you to go home, what's up? Well, I, I couldn't do it. Well, I'll tell you what, sit down with me and uh, let's, let's at least have a toast to the soldiers that are out there on the front lines. A toast, did I say? 
Try 20 or 30. And he got him drunk on purpose. Sent him out. Now go, go, go home. Now it says that he slept another night on the steps of the palace. But if you've ever seen somebody on a bender, you know, the odds are as likely as not he made it as far as the palace steps and went, this looks like a really good couch to me. I think I'll just lay her down right here. Because uh, we do that sometimes. David is in trouble. And David is in trouble because he doesn't understand yet that it wasn't the moment that he saw Bathsheba. It wasn't the moment that he asked her to come and spend the day with him. It wasn't the moment when she conceived or when she sent the word. It wasn't even the moment when he called Uriah home. No, the trouble had started when David thought that God needed him to build him a house. And he had set his legacy and his reputation on getting that done, and God said, no, thank you, no. But I am the one who will do for you. I don't know why that's not enough for us at times. I don't know why. All I know is that it's not enough for us at times to be given life, salvation, and the Holy Spirit and still think we have to take something else for ourselves. But our salvation in Christ is never to be exploited. You weren't saved at the cross in order to get your own way or to have things comfortable. You were saved at the cross in order to bring you to community, and in order that God may restore your heart to the very image of Christ. We have to pray for David today. We have to pray for each of us. We have to pray that as we live in a world that tells us that we're supposed to be good consumers, that we don't come to church like good consumers. That we come here instead to get life from God in a different way. It's not by giving. It's not by spending time. It's by receiving from the Lord that which he would have us receive. It's about living in love with one another. It's about being gracious to one another. It's about seeing one another and not seeing something to be exploited, but seeing something to be treasured and to be cherished. David forgot for a minute that Bathsheba was a human being. And he's a king, and he's decisive. Remember the battle with Goliath? Well, now he's not fighting on an open field. He's fighting in his soul. And you see something you want, you be decisive. Send for her quickly before I change my mind. And he did. <sighs> if you ever needed to wonder whether the scriptures were inspired, look to passages like this. Which one of us, if we were sitting down to write a hero story for God, would have included this story in it? We never would have. This is the greatest evidence to me that God has meant these stories to be our salvation too. Next week, as I come pedaling in from 
up north. We're going to hear that David will add yet another commandment to the list of things that are going to be picked off as sin tightens its grip. But for today, for today, there's a woman wondering how her husband's faring in battle. There's a husband passed out on the steps of a palace. And there's a king who in the silence of his chamber is not able to sleep at night, wondering who is going to find out. If you see yourself somewhere in that picture, come to Christ, come to the church, come to this place where sinners are not judged with if you do well and if you don't. Come to the land of nevertheless. Yeah, you have sinned, and it's serious. For the rest of his life, David the giant slayer will also carry this scar. It's not going away. But there is a love, there is a love of God that is greater than our scars. And I wish that's what we celebrate in our church. The love of God that is greater than our scars. A wise leader once told me, Bill, if you want to impress people, tell them about all your successes. But if you want to impact people, share with them your deepest failures. Yeah, that's right. I smacked my brother in the back of the head. And that was 11-year-old Bill. Sometime when we have an evening and a quiet moment, I'll tell you some other stories that will curl your toes. And you can tell me yours in the warm glow of God's spirit and the power of God's love. Amen.